on this episode of Jeff Does Vegas. With the MGM thing, the group that did it, they released a press release on how they did it. And what they said was they basically social engineered their way into the MGM systems. What this involved was what we call open source intelligence. And what they did was they phoned up the MGM IT help desk and convinced via social engineering the IT help desk to give them access to an account. Las Vegas. It's more than just a city. It's a feeling. It's that feeling of excitement when you spot the lights of the strip out the airplane window. It's that feeling of awe as you stroll down the boulevard, taking in the sights and sounds. And it's that feeling of satisfaction knowing that you're in the greatest city in the world. Over 42 million people from around the world share that feeling every year. And I'm one of them. Taking you to the world-famous Vegas Strip and beyond, my name is Jeff, and this is Jeff Does Vegas. Welcome to episode number 170 of Jeff Does Vegas. Before we get rolling for this episode of the podcast, I want to take a moment to thank my guest from the last episode, Kevin Sucre, the founder of America's favorite yacht rock band and Las Vegas headliners, The Docksiders. Kevin and I had a great conversation about what inspired him to create the Docksiders, and he revealed which entertainment icon helped to bring the show to Las Vegas. He also went in-depth on his thoughts on the current state of the music industry, and he shared the story of his first visit to my hometown of Winnipeg and the uniquely Winnipeg experience he got to be a part of. If you haven't listened as of yet, head to the archives at jeffdoesvegas.com or search out Rockin' the Boat with the Docksiders on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. It was September 11th, 2023, when news began trickling out online that MGM Resorts was experiencing, as they put it, a cybersecurity issue. They said they began shutting down various systems to minimize the impact of the problem, but the company claimed their facilities were, quote, operational. However, social media told a different story. Guests of MGM Resorts, including Mandalay Bay, the MGM Grand, and the Bellagio, were all reporting major issues, including slot machines being down, room keys and locks not functioning properly, and spending hours in line waiting to be manually checked in for their stays. Even the company's main website went down, meaning people were unable to book new room reservations, purchase show tickets, or log into their MGM Rewards accounts for comps and credits. In the end, it ended up taking close to two weeks for things to return to normal, and MGM Resorts is estimating that, in total, the attack likely cost the company well over $100 million. But how did it all go down, and how can hacks like these be prevented? My guest for this episode of the podcast is here to answer those questions and many others. FC, aka Freaky Clown, is an ethical hacker, social engineer, co-founder of the cybersecurity company Sygenta, and the author of How I Rob Banks and Other Such Places. Over the last 30 years, FC has helped thousands of corporations and organizations advance their security, both online and in the real world. FC and I talked about social engineering and how it applies to cybersecurity, the pros and cons of paying a hacker that hits you with ransomware, what to do if you suspect you've been caught up in a hacking, and much, much more. Please enjoy my conversation with FC, aka Freaky Clown. 
city I grew up before the World Wide Web was invented. Um, you know, computers were just coming around. Um, they had little toggle switches and stuff. I was tinkering with all of that. And that was before there was a cybersecurity industry, right? And so basically, I was messing with computers and getting into all this hacking stuff because you had to understand how computers work. You had to hack them in order to get them to do the things that you needed to. And so, you know, without any laws around it, I wasn't breaking any of those. So that was quite nice. Um, and then basically, you know, after college, I sort of fell into some jobs that kind of revolved around computers. And that meant I was, you know, running these computer systems, but that kind of entailed protecting them as well. And so I found the easiest way to protect them was to attack them and figure out what was wrong, right? So I ended up using the same tools and techniques that, that the hackers were using. And yeah, the love fell into a, a career, right? So here I am 30 years later, and I'm still doing what I love. Um, t- tell me a little bit about Sygenta and what Sygenta does. Yeah, sure. So um, Sygenta was formed out of this idea between my wife and I. She she really focuses on the human side, the human element of cybersecurity, right? So the behaviors, the culture, all of that sort of stuff, like why people do things the way that they do and how to change their behaviors into more secure practices. And I come from the digital hacking side, but I also have a specialism in physically breaking into places. You know, I'm, I'm more known as the guy that robs banks, like and steals money and gold bars and people and helicopters and all sorts of interesting things. Um, so Sygenta was built to sort of bring all of that together under one roof. Um, and it just so happened that, you know, husband and wife team as well. And we get to fly around the world together and talk about these types of things as well. So it's, it's a fantastic little, uh, I don't know, company for, for doing all sorts of interesting things. You mentioned the physical security work, and I did just finish reading the book, How I Rob Banks and Other Such Places, which was such a fun read and, and so interesting to go through. Um, when did you start doing that physical security side of things? Because that really is taking that cybersecurity side and going, eh, you know, just, let's let's put this in the real world. Yeah. So I, I remember it quite clearly. I was um, going on to client sites and doing the the normal digital pen testing stuff, right? So I was on their, on their networks, in their sites, and, you know, sort of doing all of the stuff that I needed to do. And then at the end of the day, I have to produce a report of all of the issues that they have. Now, I happened to just note down a couple of physical security issues that I saw um, during that assessment. And it, that couldn't go in the real report, so it was a separate note. And every time I'd go into different clients, that note would get slightly longer to the point where it's now like a page, page and a half of issues. And sometimes they were bigger than the actual, the report for the digital stuff. And so eventually clients started coming to us and be like, look, this is really useful. This isn't so useful, the digital stuff. Um, can you come and just do the physical part for me? Um, because that's more, you know, it, we get a lot more value out of that and nobody else is doing that. And so I, you know, that's how I got to rob my first bank, which was a fantastic eye opening experience. Definitely. Tell me about that first job. Did, did it, <laughs> I mean, I can't even imagine somebody saying, okay, we want you to rob this bank. I mean, the, the planning that went into it, the amount of preparation that went into it, or, or did you, you were just like, yeah, you know what? I can do this. No problem. 
this this is a this is a funny story. So first of all, we have to tell your listeners. I do this with the permission of the bank, right? So it's the bank that comes to me and says, "Can you break into us?" Right, and this is how it works with digital or physical hacking. So the bank comes to us and says, "Can you can you break into our bank, right, and potentially steal something, i.e., money, right?" So I'm like, "Yeah, sure, definitely. Yeah, I've never done this before." This should be easy, right? So I'm in the middle of London and it's an investment bank. It's not like a, uh, you know, a normal high street bank. So it's this big fortress like building and there's some, you know, there's some money inside somewhere, but I have no idea what I'm doing. So I'm looking at this building and it's like three in the morning. I'm wearing a balaclava, like rolled up onto the top of my head. So it's like a beanie hat. So I'm sitting there. I'm in dark clothes. I'm, I'm prepping to break into this bank and I am just bemused as what I'm going to do. So I am lost in thought completely. And I'm sitting there with my arms crossed because it's cold. It's London, right? It's three in the morning. And I'm just staring at this building completely lost in, like you're trying to work out like what, what does the inside look like based on like the, where the windows are positioned and all that sort of stuff. And I hear this noise behind me. It's like, <coughs> excuse me, mate, what are you doing? And I'm like, ah. Oh. Trying to work out how to break into this bank, right? That's, that's all I said. I didn't even look round. <laughs> so I hear another like gasp. So I turn around and there are two police officers <laughs> stood right stood right over me, wondering how their day is going to go because they have just caught a bank robber who is so stupid. He's just said, "I'm breaking into this bank." <laughs> you can imagine how the next few hours of my life went as I, as I attempted to explain that I was meant to be doing this and this is a real job. And I've, I've had this conversation with many police officers over the years now where they are just incredulous. They're like, oh, how is this a job? Like, we are here to stop people from doing this. And I'm like, yeah, I'm here to stop people from doing this as well. But I do it so that we know where those flaws are and then you can they can fix it and then Real criminals can't break in. It's like something out of a Monty Python sketch. Pardon <laughs> me, was. mate. What are you? What are you doing? I'm just figuring out how I'm going to break into this place. Uh, Whoops! <laughs> I, I learned some lessons there about uh, yeah, keeping your head on a swivel. Well, I, and I would imagine too. I mean, knowing from there to where things got, and reading some of your other exploits in the book, I mean. You learned a lot about preparation and the amount of preparation that goes into getting ready for one of these types of jobs. Yeah, I mean, it, it generally takes like you know sort of weeks or or whatever because you know some of them are incredibly secure. You know, some of them, some of them are just really odd. I, you know, I remember being asked to steal a helicopter once and having no clue how to fly a helicopter. And I break into this building and I, you know, cl climbing through some dark underground tunnels to get into this building and I get in and I go through all this preparation to get there. And, you know, hey, re read the book if you want the whole story, but basically there's no helicopter to, to steal. It, it was all, it was all sort of delayed and it was just like, oh man, I spent all this time prepping. And then that last, last moment where it, where it's going to be amazing doesn't happen it, is, it can be quite disappointing sometimes yeah. you mentioned i mean you you've worked with banks obviously and in the book you talk about all the different types of organizations that you work with you don't mention any companies obviously yeah. um but i mean you really do work with it, it runs the gamut of who you work with yeah yeah because security is really 
the same for everyone, right? Whether or not you're a small company or a, a massive multinational billions of dollars like type huge company, they're all having the same physical security flaws. And we see this because people are really focused on one of those three areas that I mentioned that there's that physical part, there's the digital part, and there's the human part. And if you don't have security in all three of them, you don't have security, right? And I've proved this many times, like you know, companies that spend literally hundreds of millions of dollars on digital defenses. And I walk in to their building and literally steal their servers. Well, it's, it's kind of pointless having all that software, right? <laughs> so <laughs> you have to have, all three of those areas working together. Otherwise, it, it doesn't matter. And, and almost all companies, big or small, fall into that category. How often is it that you get called into action after something has already happened, after a breach has happened? It's almost like that family that puts in the burglar alarm system after their house has already been broken into, right? Is it is that pretty common for you? Um, actually, it's a, it's a little bit more interesting than that for us. Um, we tend to get called in, not really after the fact, but when... When their peers uh, are breached, right? So if there's a company and they hear that their their friend's company has been um, breached in some way, then they start to get a little bit nervous. They're like, oh, this is hitting a little bit too close to home. We need to do something about it now before it happens. So we're actually really lucky in that like sort of probably 80% of our clients are, are people that are proactively doing this. And to be honest, that is the cheaper way to do it, right? The, 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 the earlier you involve security, whether that's digital or physical or human, the, the cheaper it's going to be and the more effective it's going to be. Because if you try and tack it on right at the end of your project, that's going to cost you because you're going to have to rebuild a whole bunch of stuff. Are you ever shocked by how little attention and I guess money um, companies will actually pay to their security. I mean, it's, it's gotta be incredible when you can. And again, from the book, some of the stories that you tell where you literally just walk right in the front door and staff help you steal things and help you walk out with things. Are you ever shocked by this? Or at this point, is it just like, well, this is pretty much just the status quo now. I I would say I used to be shocked by that. Like, you know, the, the first time you steal a gold bar or the first time you kidnap someone, like that's a shocking moment. But then you kind of get used to it. And you're like, well, okay, hang on, I've done this before. And and then after a while, you know, 10, 20 years, you're just like, hang on, I'm, I'm doing the same things. This isn't, this isn't hard. Like I've been doing this for, you know, almost three decades now. Um, and I've got a hundred percent success rate. That, that's not because I'm like the world's most amazing breaker in of things. It's because there's, <laughs> there's always. I mean, I'm pretty good, right? But <laughs> there's always a flaw that I can take advantage of. And that's why that recon piece beforehand, whether it's for the digital hacking or the uh, the physical stuff, it, that recon piece is so vital. And it's why we, we try and educate people um, around what are the issues, what are the attacks? Because I would say, you know, sort of most of, most of our jobs now are, are related to cybersecurity in some way, but we're not always cybersecurity experts. And so, you know, my wife and I, we fly around the world literally talking about these types of attacks. And we and we give these stories and we give these examples and case studies and demonstrations. So, you know, get someone like us that have been doing this, been doing these attacks into your companies and educate the people because they are genuinely the strongest link in your organization. You know, with some of the biggest attacks 
attempts at hacking and, and theft being stopped by a single person. Um, yeah, the, the Bank of Bangladesh heist was like, yeah, a billion dollars, I think it was, they, they were trying to steal. And it was one analyst in New York that stopped it. They, they saw a spelling mistake, picked up on it, and that was it. They, they killed the transaction. So educating people is the biggest thing um, that I think people should be spending their money on. When you're out in public, um, do you find yourself just constantly assessing security when you're going through places? I mean, so it must drive you. Like, can you even have a normal day out? Or is it like you and your wife out for dinner and you're like, honey, see that door? That's a problem. That window, that's a problem. That dude over there just walked away with those people's credit cards. That's a problem. Like, are you even able yeah. to have a normal night no. out? No, there, there is no normal. <laughs> and I'm I'm really grateful that my wife is so supportive of me. Like, because when we, when we first got together, it was literally, I was just pointing out, like, we'd be walking down the street and I would just groan about something. What is it? And I'd be pointing at something. We can't do anything about it. Yeah, it used to be though when I was younger, I would point these. Like, I would go up to complete random people or random companies, and be like, "You know, you should be doing this and this," and they would just like freak out. So I stopped doing that, and then I started like <laughs> telling my wife about it. And now, now I don't even have to point it out. She can tell just from a look in my eyes. She's like, "Oh God, he's at it again." <laughs> like I don't have a normal day like that. I it. it, it it's a heart attack walking down the streets. Like if I'm if I'm walking through London or a, a city like that, yeah, you walk past, you see CCTV cameras are like, yeah, you, know, you can reach up and just move them, or they're pointing at the wrong thing, or you can look through windows. You know, um, there is there are some banks uh, in England. Not going to name the name. They have very big glass windows, uh, and you can just walk up and just look at what they're typing on their on their screens like it's ridiculous so i i have a heart attack whenever i go out anywhere um so yeah a bit uh it, it's not normal for me and i would imagine movies and tv have been completely oh ruined God, for yeah. you as well yeah. <laughs> you, you just have to suspend your disbelief on that and be like okay do you know what you got that one thing right that's kind of clever but everything else is just what are you even doing my mother-in-law was a nurse and trying to watch any kind of medical show with her is just forget it it wasn't not even remotely possible yeah yeah it's, it's you know you have to lose yourself into either the 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 tv show or the the movie and just kind of go okay yeah it's kind of cool because like if you if you genuinely if you if you put a camera on me and you know i've had interviews on tv before and they're like oh show us some hacking i'm like it's really it's really quite boring looking. It's running some, it's typing some commands on a screen, some stuff goes past, and then my brain has to interpret what comes past. Like there's no flashy, cool stuff. And so having that conversation with them and, and trying to work out how do we make this look cool? Because it is very cool, but it just doesn't look it, right? Um, Kind of like me. I'm kind of cool, but I don't look it. <laughs> um, I suffer from the same problem. Or is it so the reverse? I, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah I, yeah, I can totally understand why they have to bring a visualization of the processes that we're trying to do. Let's talk about cybersecurity, because this is something that recently just uh, landed 
I mean, it's constantly in the news, but it's something that really just recently landed big time in the news with Las Vegas, with mm-hmm. um, MGM Resorts being hit with a, a massive cybersecurity, as they called it initially, an issue that, uh, I mean, affected their entire resorts, not just in Vegas, but all over the U.S. It was slots and gaming. It was room keys. It was POS systems. It was check-in and check-out, which, I mean, in my brain opened up an entirely different nightmare of security with them handwriting credit card numbers yeah. down. Oh, um, this went on for, for several weeks and, and really took a, a lot of time to get sorted out. And I think people are still a little twitchy. First of all, does, does this surprise you that this happened or really was this just a matter of time? No, it, it didn't surprise me at all. So for those of you who don't know, I am British. You can tell from my accent, but my wife and I moved to Las Vegas. So we were here and we were not involved, right? I just want to make sure that people understand <laughs> we moved to Vegas, then this happened. Complete coincidence. Um, so <laughs> the MGM Grand incident, um, no, it doesn't surprise me at all because the company's so massive, right? And once you get beyond a certain point, about 10 employees, uh, it starts to get really difficult to manage everyone and their education and what they're doing. And when you get that big, no, it, it's almost inevitable that someone is going to get into your systems. And and one of the ways that we try and tell people to protect themselves is uh, a separation of duty, a segmentation of your networks, physically and, and logically, um, because then that stops attackers from moving what we call laterally through those networks, uh, which is exactly what happened in this case. Um, but no, this, this didn't surprise me at all. It was just kind of like, oh, yeah, it's a Tuesday. <laughs> in the grand scheme of things i mean was this small scale really when you when you look at what they could have done or what they could have pulled off was this a, a almost like not a test but it was pretty small scale yeah so yeah we have we have different uh how do i explain this a little bit nicer you might have to edit this jeff um Okay. Profanity is permitted on this podcast, okay. so if you need to swear, go right ahead. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I wish I'd known that earlier. Fuck. Right. <laughs> so, basically, you have different types of criminals, right? You have the ones that are just going after the money, right? The financially organized sort of crime rings, right? They're, they're, they're financially motivated, and that's what this was. They wanted to get some money, so they put in some ransomware, they get the ransom paid, and then they, they sort of bugger off, they just give you your data. Then you have people that really want to just do damage, right? So if they wanted to, uh, if it was a, a you know just a, a malicious group, they could have got into that same systems and just deleted everything, right? There's no recovery. No amount of money is going to re- repair it. You, you're done, right? Thankfully, they weren't like that. It, they were just after money, right? And money can be replaced. Then you have the other... Um, end of the scale, which is like, you know, the nation state style, what we call the advanced persistent threat. You may have heard that term in the media. And this is basically very subvertive. What they could have done was got in to those systems and implanted themselves for months, years, and just slowly started trickling out information, slowly started pulling out, uh, you know, sort of, uh, finances or, or data on, on users and, and clients. And never been detected, right? And in you know, most cyber criminals that are doing that, they're in, they're in systems for like 180 days before they get noticed. So you can do a lot of stuff and steal a lot of stuff in 180 days. And that's just on average. You know, we, we know of some groups that are 
completely embedded into um, into systems. I was once part of a group where we we got one of us into the building uh, to get onto their networks. And once one person is in that building, you can get others in. And eventually there was like five or six of us sitting in this corner of this office, like all working together on this network, pulling off data, et cetera. And it was only only a, a, a silly thing that sort of tipped us off to uh, the security teams because our access cards were like super God level. We could get anywhere. And someone had used one of them where they shouldn't and it got logged and they were like, hang on, where's this come from? Who are these guys in the corner? Like, what are they doing? Like, they've been here for a week. Um, so, you know, if you're smart, you can stay in these systems for a long time. So MGM were kind of lucky in the fact that it was just a ransomware and you pay the fine and then you move on. With the ransom and ransomware, I mean... If you get hit with a ransomware, whether you're an individual or whether you're uh, uh, on a large scale like this, a corporation, should you pay the ransom? I mean, I know in the story that I, I read on this, Caesars Caesars got hit as well, kind mm-hmm. of by the same group, yeah. and they did pay the ransom. Word is they shelled out 15 million bucks to, to make these guys go away. Should a company pay the ransom or does that just make them a target for other groups that look at it and go, well, they paid those guys? If we go in there and really fuck shit up, mm-hmm. um, maybe they'll pay us more to go away. Exactly. And so the answer to that is an equivocal no, right? But you have to make the right decision for you. Um, you know, there, there's a, there's the finance side. Caesars made that call. They were like, okay, you know, MGM, they say it costs at least a hundred million dollars, right? MGM, uh, sorry, Caesars. They negotiated a bit. They didn't pay the full 15 million. I think it's probably half that they ended up paying. Um, is what we normally see. Um, and they, they were back up and running in like three days. 15 million to them is two days of running, right? So they made that money back really quick. So from a financial aspect, I can totally see why you would think that, but you're right. If you do pay criminals money, then you are flagging yourself as a target. They're going to come back. That other criminal gangs are going to try and attack you. You know, there's there's all sorts of issues around the ethics of giving criminals money, right? I mean, there's ne- that group, Sacred Spider. They now have you know, eight, ten, fifteen million that they can use. I mean, if any company out there had a, a fifteen million dollar budget for their IT security team, they'd be laughing. Yeah, you know, so you know, they've got a huge amount of money now that they can throw at resources for getting into places. Um, you know, if nobody paid, there wouldn't be a business model there, right? And this is what we found with ransomware is, you know, when it started you know, 10, 15 years ago, the the average ransom was about $189. That was it, right? And, yeah. and so the first ones, you had to write a check and send it to, I think it was like Panama, right, to a post office box, and it would, get che- it would just get cashed. And now it's like hundreds of millions of dollars. And it's like, it's just crazy. Like, so if nobody paid, then the criminals wouldn't be getting any money. And they'd be like, well, this isn't working. Let's stop this scam and move on to something else. So, yeah, you, you definitely shouldn't pay. And there is obviously the legal aspect. Some countries, some states frown upon you paying. So, you know, there, there's um, 
some great resources out there. I can't remember the name of the site now. It's like shouldyoupay.com or something. I can't quite remember what it is. Um, but it's like it shows you a map of where it's legal and illegal and maybe a bit of a gray area, right? So if you're a government institution, you absolutely can't pay in some states. Um, I, I can't remember what the laws are in Canada, but I know it's like, you know, depends on, on what you're doing. So ethically, no, you shouldn't pay. Legally, you probably shouldn't pay. Um, financially, well, you know, if you, if you don't have the resources like backups and segmentation, backups are huge, right? If you have regular, decent backups that are stored offline and encrypted and aren't touched, then you can restore really quickly. Um, we actually saw that in the Colonial Pipeline attack. So when Colonial Pipeline got shut down and it caused massive chaos on the East Coast, um, they actually ended up paying the ransom. But the ransomware group weren't weren't great, right? The, the software that they gave you for that money was really slow. And Colonial Pipeline were like, this is going to take weeks to fix, right, using your software. And they had really good business disaster, like recovery plans. They had decent backups. And so they used that and they actually got up and running quicker than if they'd have carried on using the, the ransomware group's decryption software. So maybe they shouldn't have paid the ransomware. Maybe they should have just gone straight to the backups. But backups are key. That stops you from paying the ransom. Maybe they should have asked for a refund after. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, yes. Your software is terrible. We'd like our millions of dollars back, please. In fact, we're going to hire a hacker to hack you guys oh, that, to that's, take that's you down. Idea. That's a bad idea. <laughs> we, we, we hear this all the time. Like, yeah, should you hack back? Should you attack the hackers? And all I can say is from working from a nation state level, attribution is really difficult figuring out who the actual end person was because actual hackers move through multiple computers, right? Through different networks. You'll, you know, if you're a hacker collective, you are trying to make it look like a different hacker collective. If you're a country attacking another one, you want to make it look like a different country. So you compromise. Yeah. You know, if, if I was say Russia going after Ukraine, for example, right? I wouldn't, I mean, I probably would if I was Russia, I'd just come straight from Russia. But you would be like, hang on, <laughs> let's compromise some computers in America, right? And then go via those and do our attack. Or maybe we go via America and attack China. And then China thinks it's America attacking because the attribution isn't easy. So following that chain back, especially across political landscapes, is incredibly difficult. So you should never try and hack back, definitely. <laughs> Um, word is that this MGM hack and the Caesars hack as well was a, a social engineering hack where somebody pretended to be somebody else and managed to get themselves logged into someone else's system. Um, can you explain social engineering sort of in a general term and as it applies to, uh, to hacking and cybersecurity for those who may not be aware of what it is? Yeah. So social engineering is convincing people to do things that they probably wouldn't normally do, right? And we do this all the time in our lives, right? Like, you know, whether or not it's, you know, the kid wants a, a candy bar and is screaming, right? So they they cry until they get the candy bar, right? Or maybe it's a, a sales are massively bad for it, right? So sales are trying to sell you on this idea that if you buy this car, you're going to get the beautiful women and you're going to live an amazing life. But all you have to do is buy this car 
or maybe the next one up, Mick. Um, it, social engineering is pushing people and they're into, into things that they probably wouldn't do, right? And how we do that in sort of the hacking side is I convince people to open a door for me or I convince them to help me, you know, steal some computers from their own company. With the MGM thing, the group that did it, a group called Sacred Spider, they actually released a, a, a sort of a press release. This is kind of getting a bit more normal now um, for groups. They sort of like to brag about these things. They released a press release on how they did it, which isn't unusual, but you know, it may sound unusual to the, the average viewer. Um, and what they said was they basically social engineered their way into the MGM systems. What this involved was what we call open source intelligence, right? So this is looking on the internet, basically, and browsing around places like LinkedIn and Twitter and Facebook and finding as much information about a company as you can, and especially their employees. So what Sacred Spider did in this case was they found employees of a specific job type on LinkedIn, right? Because everyone has their jobs on there, right? Everyone can be found. Um, so they found these people. And what they did was they phoned up the MGM IT help desk system, um, which they'd found from other open source intelligence um, systems. And so they basically pretended to be this person. So they impersonated this person and convinced via social engineering, the IT help desk to give them access to an account. And once they had access to that account, they could then get in, start looking at the systems internally, and then start doing what we call the initial recon of um, that network and seeing where things should go. And then they just dropped in some ransomware, and that's it. So it's incredibly easy to do, and that, that really harks back to that, that education piece. Their IT help desk should absolutely not have given any access to anyone. Um, because there are methods to verify that you're talking to the right person. Um, so it comes down to that education piece. If that IT help desk user had been educated in the correct way, was aware of those types of attacks, it probably wouldn't have cost $100 million. That's incredible. So, I mean, how can a person, or both on, a, on an individual and on a business level, avoid getting sucked in by one of these social engineering things? As you say, is it really just education and making sure that the person on the other end of the phone is is or on the other end of the chat is asking the right questions and just making sure that they're somewhat knowledgeable of the other person how do you how do you avoid this so the the first thing uh, i'm actually going to quote my wife here right she says like the right fish at the wrong time will always catch anyone right so if you're thinking about phishing scams we it's we're not just talking about emails that come in right the ones from the nigerian prince that wants to give you all the money they're beyond that now they're, they're very sophisticated they work on a lot of psychology a lot of emotional triggers um but we're also seeing it over like you know whatsapp and and social media any means of communication we see these these attempts of social engineering and what she says to look out for is if someone is asking you to do something like click on something or or when you download something, that's a red flag. If it causes you an emotional response, right? Does it make you feel happy, right? Because happy is a good one. We want to, we want to be liked. Um, yeah. Or if it makes you feel angry or upset, or if there's a time pressure, if they're saying like, yeah, oh, it's got to be done now, right? 
Um, they use a lot better wording than I do, right? They're really, really good at this. Criminals are phenomenally good at doing this because they do it day in, day out, right? And they know how to manipulate people. So if there's a time pressure, if they're asking you to do something and if it makes you feel something, then, then they're red flags. And so what you have to do is verify it in a completely different way, right? So if you've got a text message or if you've got a, a voicemail or some email, use a different method to contact the original source and say, hey, did you send this email? Did you send this text? Because I'm, I'm suspicious of it. And to be honest, a lot of the emails that I write sound like phishing emails because <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm not very good at them. Um, so uh, it, it could always be genuine, but it's better to just take a couple of seconds, just a minute to figure it out and figure out if it is real than you know, transfer $250 million. Like, you know, we, we've seen that with our clients where they just give out money and because the, the attackers have, moved their way of thinking from what we call a Spock way of thinking, type one thinking, which is where you're calm and collected and you know, emotionless to Homer way of speak, uh, thinking, which is like you know, impulsive and you're not really thinking and you just want to get the job done or they've, they've manipulated you into some way of like, oh, I, I, I'm being asked by my boss to, to transfer this money. And you know, it's, it's, it's easy to do. You do it thousands of times a day, like flicking between these you know, impulsive, I want to eat this donut versus that I shouldn't eat this donut because now I've got to go to the gym. Um, everyone's susceptible to it. It used to be really easy with those phishing emails and such to, to spot them because the grammar was horrendous and the spelling was terrible and things were misspelled. Is AI now causing more of this to happen i mean anybody can create a a chat gpt account and basically do anything with that chat gpt account <laughs> is that now basically assisting these these hackers and these social engineers and that now they they don't have to worry so much about poor grammar or poor spelling yeah absolutely um you know we, we did a demonstration for a client the other week where we got you know um these ai systems to generate an OSINT report on both myself and my wife, like from just like, you know, who is Freaky Clown? And that's it. That's the starting point. And then it built out a fantastic report with little headings and everything. Um, so it took what would normally take about a week. It took about, you know, five minutes. Um, you know, it was about 80% correct. I mean, it got some things wrong. It's like, my hobbies don't include skydiving. I have no idea where, <laughs> where it got that from. Um, but they just don't. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it's pretty good. And fact checking it is quicker than generating it in the first place. And then we got it to, based on all of that, was to write us an email, uh, an invite to a, a gala event, I think it was, um, which it, it, it produced in yeah, three seconds. And it was, full of all of these manipulative words that would make us click a link, right? And then, you know, that, that sort of email is really hard to craft, especially you know, if, if English isn't your first language, it becomes much more difficult. But now, now criminals can do that really easily. Um, we don't tend to see it in the headlines at the moment, like we're not seeing people being like, oh, I was scammed by, via AI because it's just what we call a force multiplier, right? It, it doesn't do the work for you. It just allows you to do what you're doing 
quicker and easier. It's not always more accurate, but you know, it will get the job done at a much faster rate. So it's a force multiplier, not only for the attackers, but also for the defense. We actually got the same AI system to look at that email that it had just written and said, point out all of the red flags that show me that this might be a phishing email. And so it picked out all of the words that it put in saying, I'm suspicious of this. This is probably a phishing email. It's like, well, well, you wrote it. (laughs) (laughs) So so it can be used for defense as well. Like I say, it's a force multiplier for both sides. And we're going to be in this cat and mouse game for decades more. When MGM discovered this hack, word is they they started shutting down their systems mm-hmm. and 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 tried to minimize the damage. I, I assume that by the time, whether it's an organization like MGM or an individual like like me, figures out that we've been hacked, it's probably way too late to start shutting things down, right? Uh, well, kind of. Like so, in in a company, if ransomware takes hold, right, that that first computer. That initial one is over really quickly, right? Um, you know, some, some software written by criminal gangs is quite quick. Some of it is very slow, as we saw with Colonial Pipeline, right? So it depends on their skill level. Maybe AI is going to help them get those faster. I don't know. But that first one, yeah, you're almost certainly going to lose that one. And this is what I was meaning about the segmenting of your networks. If you, if you contain it, to one area, right? So if it's just the HR department that gets hit or if it's just the finance department that gets hit and it isn't able to spread out of that, you've you've kind of you know, helped your losses a little bit. Um, but generally, you've got about four or five minutes to figure out something's going wrong and you can like pull the network plug or shut down your Wi-Fi on, on your laptop or whatever um, before it starts to spread out over the network. It doesn't mean it can't go quicker than that, but on average, it's about four minutes. So if you're really lucky, you can prevent those attacks from hitting your really interesting servers um, too quickly. You can you can start to like, you know, can we can we segment this network? Can we like shut it off at the switches? Do we just have to unplug stuff? Last resort, power down machines to stop them from being um, attacked. We saw um, in the the Maersk attack, um, they were caught up in a bit of collateral damage on an attack for something else, but it caused massive disruption for Maersk. And it turned out that their entire savior, their entire systems was one machine in South Africa um, that had been taken offline for some repairs. And that was the only one that they had that had all of the information they needed to rebuild the rest of their company. Um, so it, it was it was luck more than judgment. It, they didn't have like you know, decent backups or offline systems, but this one machine was uh, it's in South Africa, and they had to get it. I think they they ended up having to get it to London, but the guy who had the hard drives didn't have a visa, so they had to do a handoff in France. It was just an absolute craze fest. Um, but yeah, it shows that just having that offline system, that segmentation meant that they were able to rebuild their company. Otherwise, they would have gone bust. How often is it that it's just dumb luck that saves a company like that? <laughs> I, I, would, I would say probably 100%. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've, I've worked with many companies where they have like you know, decent backup schedules, but they never test them. Right? They never have that real-world test. They never want to like be like, okay, let's let's try and figure out if something really went wrong 
how do we fix it? And they, they never have the time to test that. And that, that can be devastating in the moment. You know, I've seen companies that rely on like, okay, our business continuity plan is if all of our systems get ransomware, we email this team. Well, it's like, well, how you haven't got email because your systems have been ransomware. So now what's your plan? And they're like, okay, well, we'll use the telephone system. Well, your telephone system has been ransomware as well. Like now what are you going to do? And they're like, I guess we'll drive to John's house. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah, okay, you have to think of these things. Yeah. We've had clients that have lost data centers to you know, massive water floods because they weren't expecting it. Yeah. So you have to have every little idea of what might go wrong in your business continuity plan. Otherwise, it's going to bite you. We've talked about better training for workers. We've talked about having a proper continuity plan. Is there anything else that, that organizations can do or should be doing, I guess, is a better way to phrase it, not can, but should do in order to prevent future attacks? Yeah. Um, you know, as you said, like education is a huge thing. Segmentation is a huge thing. I think um, what I would like to see more companies do is build on the foundations, right? A lot of people call these the basics, but they're not always basic. They're not always easy to do. They are foundational to your success of, of security, right? So make sure you are patching and updating all of your devices. It seems really boring and it's really, you know, it's not fun, right? Especially if you've got a lot of machines to do. Since so many companies that are just like, well, okay, well, you can patch, but you can only patch on a Thursday uh, between the hours of 10 and 12. You know, it, it's, it's ridiculous. Like if you patch, you are less likely to be vulnerable. It's as simple as that, right? It's it's like if you're not updating your phone, Apple are really fantastic with this, right? Everyone updates their Apple phone. And the reason being is they want to get the new emojis. And Apple realized that. They're like, hang on. If we just ask people, do these security updates, nobody does them. If we say, if you do this update, you get new emojis, everyone goes crazy over it, right? So you have to find that, that, that sort of carrot to, to your users or to your C-suite to say, look, if we do this, then it's going to be better for everyone. You know, so I think update updating and patching is probably the biggest thing I see not being done properly. After a few weeks of, of this stuff with MGM and, and Caesars, they both announced that there was data that made it out mm -hmm. to the hackers and made it out personal data that got out there. If a person thinks that their info or their data has been compromised in in some way what should they be doing is there something or anything specific or particular that they should be looking out for yeah so the first thing i'd do is start changing your passwords right start with your email accounts right make sure they've got uh, actually hang on let's start with the password right so change your passwords on your email accounts right because that is the key to a lot of your other passwords right so if you go to a site and you're like hey i forgot my password it sends an email to you, right? So make sure that your email is secured first, then go and change all your other passwords. That's much easier if you're using a password manager, right? So a password manager manages, creates, um, and, and uses all of your passwords. You just have to remember one really good password to get into it, and then it generates really, really impressive um, passwords to use elsewhere. Second thing to do is make sure you have 2FA or MFA, right? So that's uh, second um, factor authentication or multi-factor authentication. That means that when you try and log into a site, 
um, it will send you, it not only do you need to put in your username and your password, it will send uh, a request to either your phone or an app that you then have to put in. It's a one-time code. Um, that will make it very, very, very difficult for hackers to get into your system. So even if they have the password, they don't have your phone. So make sure that is on, especially for your email, right? So protect your email first, then go and change everything else. Then contact your bank, make sure that no you know, finance transactions have happened that you didn't know about. And then contact the company that has been breached, right? And ask them what they're doing to protect your data. Um, so that order, protect yourself first, then worry about everything else. If um, people want to learn more about yourself and about cybersecurity and physical security, yeah. um, you, of course, you're online, you have a website, you're on social media. How yeah. can people find you? Um, so the best way to find me is probably you know, LinkedIn, uh, Twitter, YouTube. I'm on there. Um, that's probably a bit of a techie channel more than uh, anything else. You should actually follow my wife for more cybersecurity advice. Uh, so Dr. Jessica Barker. Uh, on YouTube, she puts out these great videos, uh, these little explainers, you know, WhatsApp scams, that type of thing. Um, so, yeah, I, I would follow her, not me, because uh, my of <laughs> it just geeky. <laughs> but I would definitely recommend people read the book, though. If oh, people yeah. want to find the book, yeah. where can they find that? Um, so Wiley or Amazon. Um, yeah, any any good bookshop, um, you, know, you can go to Barnes & Noble and get it if you want. Um, you know, I don't know any big Canadian um, companies for books, but yeah, it's, it's available around the world. It's available on Kindle. It's available on audiobook. Um, you don't get to listen to me for, you know, seven hours. You get to listen to some really good sounding uh, American dude. Um, so yeah, you, you can get it on all of those uh, platforms. Excellent. FC, thank you so much for taking time to jump on and have a chat. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you, Jeff, for having me. It's been amazing. And that wraps up another episode of Jeff Does Vegas. If you've got feedback on this episode of the show, or any other episode for that matter, or you've got suggestions and ideas for topics you'd like me to cover on the podcast, please feel free to reach out to me via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Jeff Does Vegas. Or drop me an email directly at Jeff at JeffDoesVegas.com. In the meantime, thank you so much for checking out the show. Be sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll know the moment new episodes are available. And don't forget to visit JeffDoesVegas.com for past episodes and show notes. My name is Jeff, and this has been Jeff Does Vegas, a Walker New Media production.